morning. Again, I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and open to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Uh, if you're using a pew Bible, that is page 2. <laughs> page 2 in the pew Bible this morning. And we're going to be looking here in Genesis chapter 3. If you found your way there, we'll pray, and then I'll read our passage this morning. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here, to lift our voices together, and to give you praise and glory. Lord, as Christ has come, he's took on flesh, and in doing so, Lord, lived a perfect life, suffering for us when he was sinless, and yet taking our sin upon his shoulders, died in our place. And all this began, yes, at his incarnation, at his first birth, but truly, Lord, the idea is all the way back in the beginning, when man first fell. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and the promise from the very start, the fact that you would send a Redeemer, one who would deliver us from our sins, and we thank you that it is Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. If you're on your way to Genesis 3, please follow along. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15 this morning. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, well, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. <coughs> this is, in a sense, the uh, official start of Christmas, you could think of celebration the first Sunday in December, and the Sundays leading up to the day of Christmas. And so what we're going to be doing over the next four weeks is looking at four different well-known passages from the Old Testament. 
that always seem to show up around Christmas time. Uh, I'm calling the series Christmas in the Old Testament. All right, how many times have you heard that phrase from Isaiah about uh, the virgin conceiving and giving birth, or the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, or Micah 5.2? You probably have never read maybe the whole book of Micah, but you know about Bethlehem, oh you who are tiny, right? From you shall come a king. So we're going to be looking at those different passages, but today we're going to start in Genesis 3.15. And this is so important for us as we think about Christmas. Christmas, of course, is the celebration of Christ's first advent. The word advent means coming, appearing. And his first advent, he came not as a conquering hero, but as a baby. Totally contrary to what the Jews, I believe, were hoping for, right? They wanted that conqueror to come and to overthrow Rome and to set them free and to right all the wrongs. But yet, here is a child. How does that work? What is God doing? And so as we think of Christ's first advent and him coming as a child, it's important to realize that this event is not separate from everything else. It's not disjointed. It's not a foreign idea of this birth of Christ. It's not an interruption of the overall story, but rather Christ's first coming, his birth, is the culmination of one of the earliest promises made by God concerning the plan of redemption. If you take a step back and think of the overall flow of the Bible, we start with creation and all the events of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Genesis. Then you move to Moses and, and the nation coming out of Egypt and the Ten Commandments and Joshua and then the judges. Then you have King Saul and King David and King Solomon. Then all the, the difficulties with the split kingdom and exile and all this is happening. And then all of a sudden we come to Malachi and then there's silence for 400 years. And then what's the next thing that happened? It's the birth of Christ. And when you think of it, you could feel like, well, that, that took a sharp right turn. <laughs> Here are these kings and nations and, and being taken into exile and brought back and the building of walls. And then it's a birth story. What is, how does this fit together? But it's important for us to see that this is a continuation, that everything that has come before is continuing to being played out here in the birth of Christ. And that's why this passage in Genesis 3 is so important for us. As we look at Genesis 3, 15 specifically, we'll look at the context and several passages in the New Testament. But our big idea is this from Genesis 3, 15, is that Christ is the promised seed of the woman who will secure ultimate victory over God's enemies. Christ, Jesus Christ, is the promised seed of the woman who will secure ultimate victory over God's enemies. As we come to this passage here, we see how Adam and Eve have sinned. They've brought death upon themselves because of their disobedience. The serpent tempted them, and he himself, being Satan, ultimately rebelled against God first and is the enemy of God and wants to lead others astray. 
And for thousands of years, this battle has raged between God and Satan and between man and Satan. But here we see the promise of the ultimate victory. And Christmas, the story of this baby in a manger, does not happen in a vacuum. It is this continuation of this great struggle. From the very beginning to the very end, this moment of the birth of Jesus is the turning point in which redemption clearly starts to invade directly into this world. It's the spark or the thrill of hope, right? The weary world rejoices. This moment when Christ is born is that moment in the fight when the fighter who should win gets knocked down, but yet all of a sudden he gets up and he has new resolve to continue on. It's the point in which the underdog realizes that he has a chance. It is hope. It is promise. It is possibility. It is the birth of Jesus. So let's look here together at Genesis 3 and how we see the entrance of sin, the promise of a deliverer, and then we'll see how we see that the deliverer has come and we see the fulfillment of the promise. So our first point this morning is we see the entrance of sin here uh, in the narrative. Genesis 1 and 2 recounts for us creation. The six days of creation, God created everything in six literal days. This is what we believe the Bible teaches, that it took God six 24-hour days to create everything because he's God, because he can do that. And God created everything out of nothing. A fancy term, it's Latin, it's called ex nihilo, means out of nothing. So there was nothing by way of material. God didn't have a big tub of Legos and say, okay, I'm going to make something. No, he had to create the tub and the Legos. God had to create everything from nothing. And he did so by simply speaking. God said, let there be light. Perhaps some of the most well-known words from the Bible. And there was light. And then he, he uh, created the the earth and the stars and the moon, and he separated the waters, and, and then he made plants and, and fish and, and, and birds and ultimately beasts on the ground, and then the culmination of his creation in chapter, or in chapter 1 and explained more in chapter 2 on the sixth day is the creation of man. And we see how he created man a little bit differently. Every other thing he created, he spoke, and it came into being. But with Adam... He took the dust of the ground and in it, he breathed into it the breath of life. Man is created of two things. He has a physical part, the dust of the ground, and he has a immaterial part, the breath of life from God. He is material and immaterial together. And God created man in his image. <coughs> this is not a a complete defense of God's creation of man by any means, talking about all the different aspects. But we see clearly here how God created man in a different, distinct way than everything else. He created man specifically. He created man personally. And he created man in his own image. It says in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, let us make man in our image. It means that we can relate we can think, we can create, we emote. We have a special relationship with God. And in Genesis 2, God created Eve from Adam to be a helper. And these two, 
Adam specifically, was to be a steward of God's creation. God created everything, and he told Adam, Adam, you are my gardener. Your job is to care for what I have created. And he did this by naming all the animals. And he was to be, in a sense, a lieutenant to God. He was his, he was his steward over the earth. But yet, Adam failed. Eve failed. And we read of this in Genesis 3. We read in verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now we read this and we understand that this just isn't your regular old, you know, uh, gardener snake or a rattlesnake even or a boa constrictor. But this serpent was something or someone specific. And as we read this passage and we read it in light of the rest of scripture, we understand that this is Satan. Satan has taken this form and has approached Eve. Verse 1, he said to the woman. So rather than attacking the head of the home, Adam, and God's steward that he directly created, he attacks Eve. And he causes Eve to doubt. What was the first attack upon God? It was questioning his word. The serpent said to Eve, did God actually say? Have you ever asked that of somebody? Did they really say that? Did they really say that? Or maybe somebody asked you that question. Did that really happen? And in your, might, in your mind, you're either like, yes, of course it did. Or maybe there's a seed of doubt. I don't know. Did they say that? <laughs> um, my wife does this with me often. Uh, well, this happened. Did, did, did they say anything? Did they really say that? Um, I think so. <laughs> but then instantly I'm, I'm caused to doubt. How many of you have left your house and you had the stove on or an iron on and your spouse or someone looks at you and said, you shut that off, right? Yeah, pretty sure I did. <laughs> and I'm like texting Pastor James, hey, can you go over and check? <laughs> I've had to do that with my space heater before in my office. <laughs> Causing doubt. And that's what the serpent does. He said, did God really say this? That you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And right there we see a lie. Because God did not say that they shall not eat of any tree in the garden. There was one tree specifically that they weren't supposed to eat from. They could eat of anything else. They could enjoy what God has created. Just as one tree they were not allowed to eat from. And Eve responds, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And that response is somewhat interesting as well because it's... Uh, it's, it's to be assumed that God never told them that they couldn't touch it, but that they just couldn't eat it. But the serpent said to the woman, verse 4, you will not surely die. There's a lie. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Of course, this is this lie that was given by Satan to Eve saying, no, don't listen to God, listen to me. And when you eat of it, you will be like God. Forget this whole submission to God who created everything. You yourself will be God. That will be great. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit. What an interesting comment on temptation, right? It was good for food. It's so nice to look at. It was a, 
It was making me wise. It's a good thing. She took, she ate. And what did she do? She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Where is Adam? Why didn't he speak up? Why did he take the fruits? Why didn't he fulfill his role as her head, as the steward of the garden that God had placed there? They ate. Verse 7, then their eyes were both opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They were, in a sense, uh, they were, in a sense, innocent before this. They were without sin, but yet when they ate, immediately they knew that something was wrong. And the idea that they were naked is more than just the fact that they were not clothed, but it communicates the idea of shame that they were ashamed of what they did. Sin immediately had an effect upon their conscience. They knew they had done something wrong and they hid themselves. Verse eight, then they heard God walking in the garden, which would have been an amazing thing to be in the presence of God, but yet they hid themselves because they were ashamed, not only of their nakedness, but of their action. And they said, we hid because we were naked. And God asked them, well, who told you? And then he asked the question, have you eaten of the tree of which I'd commanded you not to eat? And Adam does a classic uh, response of shifting blame. Well, the woman you gave me, she ate and she gave it to me. (laughs) He directs the focus to Eve. And the Lord God said to Eve, what is this that you have done? And then she said, the serpent has deceived me and I ate. This is the fall of creation. This is the entrance of sin into the world. This is the cause of all the problems that you and I face. It starts here. From our own sin in our own lives to the effect of sin and creation and the cursing that we will look at here in a little bit by God to the difficulties in relationships with other people, to the fact that our bodies break down and there's sickness and disease. It all comes back to this point when sin enters into the world. This is the conflict. This is the conflict that affects the rest of the story of Scripture, of the plan of God that ultimately will wind its way to completion When Christ comes back again, but in the middle there, we have his first coming, which we'll talk about here in a moment. But this event is the catalyst for everything, in a sense, that happens after. This sin that enters into the world. Both have disobeyed God. They've brought judgment upon themselves, and they immediately are overcome with their notion of nakedness and shame. God comes to them, and he asks them to explain themselves, and And Adam blames Eve, and Eve blames the serpent, and God says, everyone will be judged because of this sin. And this is where it begins. And we read from Romans 5. Romans 5 explains then how this sin of Adam has been passed down to all of us. Romans 5 begins wonderfully where it says we have have peace with God. We have peace with God, but Then it transitions into verse 12 in Romans 5, where it talks about our sin has come to us through Adam. 
in Adam all have sinned. And that sin has been passed down from generation to generation. You say, well, that's not fair. <laughs> Adam sinned, not me. Okay. Try not to sin then. <laughs> you can't. It's, it's part of our sin nature. It, it's who we are. It's been passed down from Adam and Eve from generation to generation. All have sinned. But just as all have sinned in Adam, we talk about the second Adam or the last Adam. That is Jesus. In the first Adam, there is sin and unrighteousness. In the second Adam, there is righteousness and holiness in Jesus Christ. We'll look again at Romans 5 here in a little bit. This is this entrance of sin. And this is a terrible situation. The relationship between God and man has conflict. It's been severed. They can no longer relate to one another in the same way because of the disobedience and sin. And then we see how God responds. In verses 16 uh, through 20, God dispenses judgment and cursing upon Adam and Eve. To the woman, he says, he will multiply her pain in childbearing. So ladies, you can thank Eve for that uh, because of her sin. And your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. There's going to be conflict in the relationship between man and woman, specifically in the marriage relationship. It's not going to be as it should. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree, cursed is the ground because of you. Adam was to be a gardener caring for the ground. But now it is cursed and it's going to be painful. It's going to be slow. And there are going to be thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you from the ground. So those of you who work the ground as your occupation, you have Adam to thank for all those weeds out there. <laughs> you are slowly reversing the curse with every application of weed killer, right? That's what I think when I'm mowing and weeding my, the yard and killing off weeds. It's like just doing the Lord's work, reversing the curse, right? <laughs> that I'm never going to win until Jesus comes back. But uh, we see how the ground is cursed. And it's going to be hard work. It's going to be labor, verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for you are dust, and to dust you shall we return. We see here the entrance of death. We come from dust and we return to dust. In verse 14, we read how the serpent is cursed. Now, <laughs> excuse me, we're not sure if the serpent had legs at this point. There's some speculation that he might have, but now he's going to crawl on his belly the rest of his life. A snake, as you've seen, crawls on the ground, and it's, it's despised. I, there's not very many people out there that are like, yes, I love snakes. Now, there's a few like fifth grade boys who are like that, uh, but they get over that, I think. <laughs> there's a, I think, because of this, a natural instinct for us to be repelled by snakes. And we see how they do continue on their belly, and they are despised. Um, these are the cursings here that we see because of sin, and these are played out through the rest of Scripture. But in the midst of all this judgment expensed by God, we have a note of promise. 
Adam and Eve have sinned. Their relationship with God has been broken. They are shamed. They are hiding themselves. The woman will have pain in childbearing and, and the marriage relationship will be flawed and difficult and, and the ground will be hard to tend and, and Adam will have to labor to produce the fruit of it. And ultimately, death will come to mankind. But in the midst of all this, there is a note of promise. And that's in verse 14. Excuse me, verse 15. In the discussion with the serpent, God says this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will put enmity. This enmity is this uh, war or warfare, this affliction. It's this, it's a literally grinding. It's the idea that there's going to be this continuing battle between the serpent and the woman. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. Now, while this is speaking to the serpent, which is Satan, we understand, and Eve, we understand how this continues on. Because he says in verse 15, between your offspring and her offspring. So it's not just between the first two, but it's for every generation following. So there are the descendants of Eve, mankind. And then you have the descendants of the serpent. And you're like, well, who is that? Well, this is all of the host of the evil forces, of Satan and his followers and those who are given over to him. In the Gospels, Jesus says, if you do not follow Christ, you are of your father, the devil. So we see the conflict between followers of God and followers of this world or those who are God's enemies. This enmity, this battle is continuing on and on. <clears throat> One author said, God said there would be a perpetual struggle between satanic forces and mankind. It would be between Satan and the woman and their respective offspring or seeds. In the direct context, the offspring of the woman was Cain, then all humanity at large, and then Christ, and then those collectively in him. And the offspring of the serpent includes demons and anyone serving his kingdom of darkness, those whose father is the devil. In John 8. This conflict escalates. It continues again and again. But the end of verse 15 is important because we read the outcome of this conflict. God says, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what's God saying here? So he's talking to the serpent, remember? So the he... Who is the he? The he refers back to the offspring of the woman. This offspring, this seed, the, the term offspring is the idea of seed, uh, descendants. He shall bruise your head and you, serpent, shall bruise this offspring's heel. It escalates into this battle that comes to blows. But as we look at this, we understand this. The contrast of injury is stark, right? The heel and the head. One hurts, one kills. How many times I've smacked my thumb, hit my knee, stubbed my toe, something hurts, and my dad would look at me and say, it's a long way from the heart. What was he saying? You'll get over it. It's not that bad. 
right? Or in the words of uh, uh, one movie, it says it's merely a flesh wound. <laughs> it's not going to kill you. It's a long ways from the head or the heart. The, the contrast is the heel, though it does hurt, it's not going to kill you. Whereas a blow to the head pretty clearly will have huge ramifications. Satan will deliver a blow that will hurt the heel of the offspring of the woman, while the offspring of the woman will deliver a blow that will crush the head of the serpent. And this is the promise. All the way back in Genesis 3, we have this promise, this, this just a shadow that is painted of this battle that's happening, but the ultimate outcome of it. That Satan will deliver a blow that he think might be the winning blow, but ultimately it is not. And that there's going to be a descendant of Eve that is going to be the one to finish the battle, to have ultimate victory. And here in this third chapter of Genesis, we read of this. This is called very, in a fancy way, the proto-evangelium. Proto meaning first, then evangelium is a term meaning gospel. You know, evangelism, you can hear it there. This is the, the first gospel, the first instance of it being mentioned here. And that's where we're left. Genesis 3 concludes with God uh, making coverings for Adam and Eve and setting them outside of the garden. They cannot be in the presence of God. And now life is going to get hard. And that's where we're left at the end of Genesis 3. So put yourself in the minds of Adam and Eve. God has dispensed this judgment. There is this curse upon the ground. You are cast out of your home, out of the Garden of Eden. There's this conflict. And the question I would ask you is, if you were Eve, would you think that your descendant the first child you have would be this deliverer. God promised that my descendant, that he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so she has Cain and Abel. But if you know your Bible, know the story of Cain and Abel, that ultimately is not the seed that would conquer. Or rather, we see continuing effects of sin. And then as we continue throughout the Old Testament, this deliverer, this seed that would bring victory. Is it Cain or Abel? Nope. How about Noah? No. Then we move to Moses. Is it Moses? It's, it's not Moses. Abraham or Isaac or one of the patriarchs? No. Saul or David? David, a man after God's own heart. It's not David. And it's not David's son, Solomon. It's, it's none of the kings still waiting and waiting and the enemy of God seems to be winning as the nation is sent into exile and, and they are scattered and the land is occupied by a foreign power. All seems lost. And it's thinking back to this one promise that was made thousands of years ago. Is it ever going to come to pass? Then in the midst of spiritual darkness, in the midst of a nation that is wandering and full of mixed idolatry of worship of idols, of poor theology, of leaders who do not care for them, God shines his light and God remembers the promise that he made. 
this promise of this offspring from the woman who is going to crush the head of the serpent. Who is this offspring? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. This is the fulfillment of the promise that was made all the way back in Genesis 3. When we celebrate the birth of Christ and we talk of hope and peace and joy, we aren't just saying that because we like those things, right? Who doesn't love hope or peace or joy? Those are great words. There's a lot of people who don't believe in Jesus that have decorations in their house that say those things. <laughs> but if you know Jesus Christ and if you know his word, you know that this season, as we celebrate the birth of Christ, we celebrate peace and joy and hope. Why? Because this battle that has been raging since the beginning of time is coming to an end. This continual striving against the spiritual forces of darkness, against the snake, is going to be ending. And this battle is going to be done. And there's going to be peace. And there is hope. And we can have joy. We say those words and we sing those words because they are a fulfillment of what was promised in Genesis 3. If you take your Bibles, flip to Luke. Matthew and Luke both have genealogies of Jesus. <clears throat> Luke chapter 3, if you're using a pew Bible, it's page 859. We're going to look here at the fulfillment of this promise from Genesis 3. Matthew's genealogy focuses on, in a sense, the royalty of Jesus, his, his kingship. So it is traced from, uh, from Joseph and Mary back to David and then back to Abraham. And we see how Jesus is this kingly uh, descendant back through David, back to Abraham, fulfilling those promises. In Luke's genealogy, he goes back even further. And what Luke is doing is he's painting the picture of Jesus and his humanity. That's why many scholars believe Luke includes the full account of Jesus' birth, right? Luke 2, how they went to Bethlehem and how he was born in the manger and everything that happened. Because Luke is showing that this is a real human baby, <laughs> And in Luke 3, we read of the genealogy of Jesus in verse 23. Luke writes, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of uh, Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi. You can read all those wonderful names. Some good baby names in there. Shrevers, you know, some good baby names in there, I'm sure. But as you make your way to the end of the genealogy, some names you'll recognize, right? Verse 36, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. What does Luke do? Luke traces Jesus all the way back to Adam. Now we understand in Genesis 3, God is talking to the serpent and to the woman, the seed of the woman. 
but obviously genealogies in the first century were coming from the male side. It was, it was the husband. It was the man. And so we see how Jesus is traced his lineage from who he is today all the way back to being the son of Adam, the descendant of Adam and Eve, the seed of the woman, the son of God. This is the fulfillment. Here he is. Jesus has come onto the scene and Jesus comes as a man. He is full flesh and blood human. He is a descendant all the way back to Adam and Eve. Though he is fully God, he is fully man. And that's what's so remarkable about Jesus is that he is fully God, fully man, two natures in one person, not mixed, but together forever. And he is the one who has come to deliver his people from their sins, to deliver that final victory over Satan, to crush the head of the snake. The birth of Christ is the turning point in history for the victor has been born. He will suffer and die. His heel will be bruised, but he will have the ultimate victory through crushing the head of the serpent. Romans 5 describes that just as through Adam all die, all are sinners, but through Christ there is life, there is forgiveness, there is righteousness. Jesus Christ in his coming, being born as a baby to human parents, tracing his lineage all the way back, yes to David, yes to Abraham, but even further back to Adam and Eve, that he is that seed that descendant of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the one who delivers ultimate victory because he is the promised one. He is the promised seed of the woman who secures ultimate victory over God's enemy. As we close, listen to this a description of this account from Genesis 3 from this author. In the early days of humankind, when the first people rejected God's rule and things were, went radically wrong, the Bible records a somewhat enig enigmatic promise. In judgment of Satan, the deceiving serpent, God declares the following, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. While a bit strange and odd, this prophecy in essence declares that one day a descendant of the woman that is a human being, will crush the head of the serpent, which is Satan, a created angelic being who had previously rebelled against his creator. Imagine someone reading through the Bible for the first time without knowing its ending. This hypothetical reader just read how God created an amazing, beautiful world and how Adam and Eve believed the serpent's lie and chose to throw off God's rule to grasp hold of all the good things God was holding back from them. What a breathtaking disaster. Within the course of one chapter, the world has gone from beautiful, orderly, and joyful to marred, cursed, and sorrowful. Genesis 3 ends with the world dark and broken and with God bar or barring his image bearers and representatives from access to the tree of life 
and from the Garden of Eden. At this point, the reader desperately needs a piece of good news, and God does not disappoint. While the serpent and humanity will continue their conflict, one day a human being, an offspring of the woman, will, at great cost to himself, at the bruising of his heel, crush the serpent's head. Our hypothetical reader immediately begins to wonder, who is this descendant of the woman? When will he come and conquer the serpent, setting everything right in God's creation? At this point, the text offers few clues as to his identity. All that is known is that he will be a human and a descendant of Eve. And as we read the rest of Scripture, continuing the rest of the story, we know that that descendant, that seed, that snake crusher is Jesus Christ. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. There is no name under heaven that can save except Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is that promised seed, that promised snake crusher who has come to end the battle, to declare victory over sin and death and Satan. And that he has done. And so as we celebrate this Christmas season and we talk about peace and hope and joy and all the things that come with this wonderful time of year, remember, it all began all the way back in the garden with sin and Satan and a promise that one day God would make all things right. And he has through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at your word this morning to remind us of your grand plan of redemption from the very beginning through Christ's first coming. And again, as we look forward to the future of him coming back and securing ultimate victory and, and making everything as it should be. Lord, may we look forward to that with hope and may we have hope now knowing that Christ has come and has secured that victory and that we have no need to fear but rather rejoice in Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. We pray this in his name. Amen.